This is the Loop Ventures Neurotech Podcast. I'm Doug Clinton. On this episode, I'm joined by Jojo Platt, president and co-founder of Platt Associates and strategic relations consultant for the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research. On this episode, we focus more on the business side of bioelectronic medicine and how to form the right message around the technology we develop. We also talk about the ethics of neurotechnology fairly broadly, which is a passion for JoJo and we think a very important emerging topic. And with that, I'm happy to bring you JoJo Platt. All right, JoJo, thanks for joining us on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So maybe to start, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in this bioelectronic medicine field? Sure. I'm kind of a jack of all trades and a a master of some, I think. (laughs) And I tend to operate more on the business and operations side of neurotechnology. And I kind of got involved with it about, gosh, maybe seven years ago. I was lucky enough to be working on some other projects with the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research in New York. And I was part of a small team that was tasked with the strategic launch of the Center for Bioelectronic Medicine. What we did was we worked off of Dr. Kevin Tracy's foundational science behind bioelectronic medicine and the inflammatory pathway. And we endeavored to create a community and a journal with a very impressive editorial board. And we put an emphasis on maintaining an inclusive environment in order to promote collaborations among a group of disciplines that before that really hadn't spent a whole lot of time getting together. So bringing a neuroscientist, it's one of my favorite jokes, a neuroscientist, a molecular biologist, and an engineer walk into a bar and nobody says anything to anybody. (laughs) I love it. It was a once in a lifetime opportunity to be involved with that. I hope I can make it twice in a lifetime or three. Definitely. The opportunity for bioelectronic medicine, I know we've talked a little about it on the podcast before. We've had Chad from Feinstein on as well. The opportunity is just, it's so huge. And maybe that's a good segue into the next question, which is in two minutes, like how do you tell people what you're working on? How do you explain to them the promise and potential for bioelectronic medicine that are new to the story? So I think much like the bar joke, bioelectronic medicine really brings together neuroscientists and molecular biologists along with engineering teams and people working in data analytics. And all of those disciplines come together with the goal of replacing drugs with devices. As we all know from watching any time on cable TV, Drugs are massive advertisers, and half their advertising is dedicated to listing out their side effects. And that's something that I think bioelectronic medicine really offers as a differentiator, is being able to address conditions and diseases without those side effects. And how it works really is that bioelectronic medicine identifies the molecular targets that underlie disease or injuries. And then Once the targets are identified, we identify the neural pathways to manipulate that target. And then from there, we can alter the signals being sent through that pathway and correct corrupted neural signals. So if you have an over-response to a signal or a dampened response, by going in and modifying the signal that's being sent, we can regulate that and hopefully return the body to a state of health. And I think that this method of treating disease shows a tremendous level of efficacy in the studies that 
have been published so far across a myriad of conditions and diseases. And it allows us to do things that are not possible through drugs. There's no drug that's going to help reanimate a paralyzed arm or to integrate sensation into a neural prosthetic. And I think beyond that, bioelectronic medicine has a higher rate of efficacy, or at least it's working in patients for whom the drugs aren't working, and that's not a treatment option for them. And it again, it doesn't introduce all the harmful side effects that one encounters with biologics. Yeah, you, you touched on, I think, every point that we're also really excited about in the space. So you got it dead on. And as you think about that, as you were describing some of even the additional fields like restoring movement for people dealing with paralysis, I'm curious, mm-hmm. like aside from the drug side, what are the other things, maybe that's one of them, that you're really excited about and you're sort of watching in the broader neurotech space over the next couple of years? I'm excited about the focus on the commercial side. So much of my time so far has been focused on the research side. And I'm excited about the increase in IPOs and early stage investment over the last year, two years. I know that I think as of 2017, the neuromodulation market, which I know is bigger than bioelectronic medicine, but that market was valued at $1.2 billion. And I think that as our science and technologies grow, so will that valuation. And I think it'll be divergent from some of the other booms in the past because it's based on science. It's not based on things that aren't real, like advertising dollars on a website. I find that to be very exciting. I know I'm watching Setpoint Medical. They're clearly and very obviously one to watch. I think their patent position is really strong. Their device data and outcome data is looking really good for RA and Crohn's. And, you know, I watch hiring trends. So when they make an announcement that they've got a heavy hitter coming in for commercialization, that combined with their FDA application announcement signals to me that they're getting closer and closer to a solid commercialization pitch. I love IOTA Biosciences. I know that Jose Carmena and Michelle Marabiz are doing great stuff with Neural Dust, and it's just beyond cool to me. I think it's great to see some of the recent FDA approvals like Cala Health and Exonics and some of the others. And I think that also signals not just the advancement of the science and technology in the therapies, but it also is a signal to me that the FDA is making good on their willingness to engage with and partner with our community and that they're serious about getting new treatments to market. IOTA is really cool. I agree with that. What they're working on is really amazing. And I'm excited, you know, as you said, kind of stepping more into the commercial side and getting these products to market. And I think that might be an interesting question for you, which is you come to this world with much more of a business background versus an academic background. And I'm curious how you think about the challenges for academics who are used to maybe doing research, the challenges for them to adapt science into a business, because it is hard to do that. And we see that every day as venture capitalists. First, actually, I can't believe we've even gotten this far without me clearly stating that I am neither a scientist nor an engineer, and I make no assertions to the contrary. So, yes, the business side is where I live. But I think that the founders and the researchers and scientists behind these technologies that hopefully are moving towards commercialization, some of their biggest challenges on the business side is really not just admitting what they don't know, but also accepting what they don't know. You know, acceptance is the key to understanding. 
and I know this field is full of brilliant minds, but accepting that you're a scientist or an engineer and most likely not a Wharton MBA is the greatest gift that you can give to the future of your discoveries and technologies. I mean, you wouldn't ask a mechanic to cut your hair. And so I think in keeping with making sure that all of the experts are driving in their own lane, I think building a team to address all of the things that are going to be in front of you, whether it's regulatory or pricing or patient engagement or clinician engagement, you have to accept that there are probably people that are better at that than you are as a scientist or an engineer. I agree with you. And I'm curious, is there a way in your experience so far that successful founders have structured their teams? Do they need to hire a really great COO or do they need to find someone that maybe is CEO and they step aside and they become chief science officer? What do you think the right formula is there? I'm not sure there is a right formula. I mean, I've seen some great teams do things in very unconventional ways and achieve tremendous success. And I've also seen teams that have done everything that you know, a lot of people would tell them they're supposed to do. go out and get a CEO. You're going to keep in the science side and I'm going to drive marketing or regulatory. The teams that don't work are the ones where you probably have a fundamental personality difference. So if you have a challenge for leadership or a challenge for recognition, that's going to get in your way more than a title or assigning a particular duty any day of the week. So I think the key to success really is making sure that you have competent people that you trust to whom you can delegate and from whom you are willing to accept delegation and also a team that you're comfortable working out your challenges and not ignoring them, but communicating them and resolving them rather than sweeping them under the rug. Yeah, I think that's very good advice, very applicable for all startups, whether they're neurotech related or not, maybe even doubly important when when hard (laughs) science is involved. Let me shift gears to a slightly different topic. We've talked a lot about clinical application for PCI and bioelectronic medicine here, but have you thought much or looked much at maybe the consumer space, non-regulated or non-invasive type technologies that are starting to come to market? Yeah, I think there are actually some great companies out there. I think non-invasive is, to use a buzz phrase that I really hate, it's it's low-hanging fruit. I think that some of the applications don't require the FDA clearance that is required of the invasive techniques, of course. Was it neurometrics that is monitoring inconsistencies in typing as a possible indication for Parkinson's? And Mm -hmm. I think that's a great application and very helpful to a huge population of the society, but knowing that they need to avoid the assertion that they have a diagnostic helps them clear the FDA hurdle while still providing a value to the public at large. I think non-invasive is a great way also to help consumers ease into the adoption of neurotech without having to introduce the idea of a surgery. I think that the clinicians in the spaces where a wearable or a non-invasive technology is available also have an easier pathway for implementation within their practices. Definitely. As you think about the innovation happening in the non-invasive side, the consumer side, and the things that are happening on the clinical side too, what do you think it'll take to get 
neurotech or brain tech, whatever we want to use for the nomenclature to become a buzzword, you know, like we have AI and we have AR and blockchain so big right now, but what do you think the mechanics are to finally get neurotech on the map there? I'm not so sure it needs to be a buzzword. Personally, I'm not sure I'd even want it to be a buzzword because how many people talk about blockchain and really don't understand what it is or understand its challenges of power consumption or AI has turned into this black mirror episode where everybody's afraid of what's going to happen. I'd rather see us go out and do and achieve what we set out to do than seek some sort of pop culture definition for it. It would be enough for me Personally, if neurotech obtained enough broad recognition and awareness that it helps to drive students into the field so that our next crop of talent is perpetually refreshed. And I think that as long as the outcomes of the research become realized and broadly utilized, I'd be happy. You can call it whatever you want at that point. If it works and it's adopted, I'm happy. <laughs> I like that take. Definitely an alternative take because I think people are so <laughs> excited when their field becomes a buzzword. And you mentioned, yeah, like AI and its implications on some episodes of Black Mirror. I think mm-hmm. certainly neurotech could fall in that same bucket. And maybe that's a good segue into sort of a quick ethics question. You know, ethics is obviously a very interesting and emerging topic when we're considering neurotech. And I'm curious from a high level, how do you think about the ethical considerations of these applications? I don't want to oversell it, but I think we're at a point where we have an opportunity to take hold of the field before it gets over-legislated. I'm a firm believer in that self-regulation leads to less interference from regulatory bodies that may not otherwise understand the technology. For instance, the broader Senate floor isn't going to understand the implications of, for instance, choosing a term saying brain-machine interface as opposed to brain-computer interface. They sound interchangeable, but when you get to some really serviceable and legal definitions, they're very different things. So I think Back to the ethics question, if we are able to establish and adopt and abide by a code of ethics, this is really an opportunity for our field to create its own constitution or bill of rights for patients, something that is that pivotal to our field as those two documents are to the governing of the United States. I may be overselling it, but I dream big. I think that is important. And what do you think is the best place to start there? How do we get organized appropriately to make that happen? Well, I think there are a lot of groups out there that are working towards that. I know the Neurotech Ethics Society is very active and effective. And I know that my conversations with other people, you know, Dustin Tyler at Case Western's got a huge focus on this. We've had some really interesting conversations at the last few meetings about its imperative. But I think that the real success is going to come out of creating a group that is very inclusive, again, like we did with the launch of bioelectronic medicine. This is not about the researchers and clinicians, and not even just adding the patients is not sufficient to that equation. We need to have input from the payers and from the caregivers, and then we need to step outside of the neurotech application for fixing diseases and move more into consumer neurotech. What is augmentation? Maybe we even include some of the governing bodies of sports or the 
International Olympic Committee because augmentation will have an effect on sports in the future. I think the first step to creating a workable, viable, living ethics document is to make sure you have the right people at the table. And that's a lot broader than I think a lot of people consider. Definitely is. Yeah, the augmentation thing is something that my colleague Avery and I have discussed a lot. And it's such a hard thing to debate and figure out what's right and wrong to the extent we even can. I mean, on one hand, there's, you know, the right for someone to do what they want to do with their body. But then on the other hand, there is this sort of fairness element, as you mentioned, whether it's sport or, you know, competition in the workplace or whatever. It seems really hard to figure out how to set groundwork for that augmentation piece. What do you think, high level, what's the right framework there to get started? I think recognizing that we're already augmenting ourselves every day. Mm -hmm. Clothing is an augmentation. Glasses, hearing aids, even drugs. I mean, we're augmenting our immune systems by taking vitamins or by taking drugs that regulate or fix our immune systems. I think recognition of or trying to define what is augmentation is a start. I think from there, gosh, I don't even know how to structure this conversation. I'd love to be a part of it, but I'm probably not going to be the driver of it. Yeah, it's such a fun one, but more to come on that, I'm sure, in in the (laughs) near future. So let me ask a couple other quick questions more on how you stay educated in the space, because obviously you understand the technology very well, approaching it from, like we talked about before, more the business side. But what do you like to read to kind of keep up on the research in the space? And how do you stay on top of understanding what's going on? It's a good question. I come in every day. I start my day by doing my news dives and kind of seeing what's happening, not just on the research side and the research publications coming out of the journals, but also looking at some of the more general population publications, seeing where there's overlap, seeing where people have misunderstood something, especially in the mainstream media, and trying to call attention to that. I rely on my network heavily to feed me their latest and greatest updates. And when I see a fit, then, you know, I read further as much as I can understand anyway. Again, I'm not an engineer or a scientist. You do pretty well, though, for sure. (laughs) Do you think that the mainstream media effectively reports on what's happening in neurotech broadly? Of course, there's a lot of mainstream media focus on companies like Neuralink and Facebook's Building 8 and Kernel. And that coverage runs the gamut from insightful reporting to over-sensationalized fear-mongering. And I think the focus on these particular companies presents a potential danger to our field. And I know that sounds hyperbolic, but if one of these high-profile projects experiences any sort of public crisis, that blowback could be highly problematic for the perception of the rest of the field. So a failure or a clinical trial problem in any one of these high-profile companies could have devastating effects. And I think it's really incumbent upon everyone in our field to protect against that sort of PR crisis by educating the media. But I think contributing thoughtful and meaningful commentary on the work of our colleagues and other people in the field is a great way to get that started. And I know this field in particular thinks that PR is a dirty word. And so I'd like to encourage people to think of it more as education than public relations. That's absolutely true. In some ways, I think, to your point, it ties a little bit into the ethics discussion too, where to the extent something does go wrong, understanding why it went wrong, being able to explain frameworks for how we handle when things might not go as expected, I think, 
plays into that education. I think these companies in particular, they're all Neuralink, Building 8, Kernel, they're all started by people who came up through tech. And the methodology there is frequently, not necessarily for these groups, but the methodology in tech is frequently go fast and break things. Whereas from neurotech and neuroscience, that's actually the last thing you want to do. I think there's a higher potential for a bit of blowback or potential failure in this situation. That's a very apt point. Okay. Let me ask you our lightning round question or our <laughs> lightning round. It's so fast. It's only one question. And it is, what's your favorite book just about neuroscience or maybe science in general that you feel helped you understand the field the best? Oh, well, that's a narrow question. I've listened to the other podcasts, so I was prepared for the book question. I'm going to diverge a little from your actual question and answer my own, which is there's a book that I'm eager to read. It was recommended by a friend. It's called Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark. It's a broad view of how AI will change our social structures and outcomes. But I'm really hoping that in the book, there is a large component that's dedicated to AI and neuroscience and what that will mean for our field at large. That's a great recommendation. I've had that recommended to me too, and it's on my list. So let's, let's definitely <laughs> read it and we'll catch up on it. Well, that's all we have today. Jojo, thanks for joining us. Thank Soon. you. Thanks.